that you would meet us this morning. You would do exactly these things, that you would indeed sanctify us in your word as we read it together, as we look at it. Would you open our eyes to see the wonders that are to be found there that will help explain what we experience in this world and give us hope for, for a future. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're taking a break from the book of Romans as we enter into this Advent season. So we'll get to Romans 13 in January. Uh, but for this morning, I wanted to look all the way back at the beginning in the book of Genesis. And this Advent season, essentially what we want to do is focus specifically on how it is that the Lord is preparing us through the reading of the Old Testament to understand the coming of, of Christ. As we think, of course, this is the Advent season, so it makes sense that we would, we would look at this. Uh, and I've picked out four specific places in the Old Testament, there's many, many more, that give us a very specific peek into the revelation of who this Son will be. Uh, so this morning we're looking at Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read from verses 1 through 19, and we'll, we'll pick some of the, the verses in there to talk specifically about. Would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman." And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your, chain, your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is God's Word. Amen. 
Would you please have a seat? I picked this text this morning because theologians would call it, uh, especially in verse 15, uh, the first pronouncement of the gospel of Jesus Christ as He talks about the seed of the woman and the battle that will uh, quickly unfold as a result of this particular conflict. I mean, this is a familiar passage. It's one that talks about the fall of Adam and Eve and the consequent judgment or the sentence that God brings down upon them as a result of their taking of the forbidden fruit. That's a familiar passage, and I wanted to talk about it specifically as to how do we understand the role of what Christ is going to do as is revealed in this passage. And to do that, we really have to understand what is the full extent Obviously, we're not, we, perhaps not the full, full extent, but what is, the, what is the breadth of the sentence that comes down upon the people as a result of this particular act? Because the breadth of that, the far reach of that sentence has to be touched in every aspect by the even farther reaches of the work of the Savior. So, I, I really want to look at this passage and those two aspects. What is the what is the reach of the sentence that God put down upon the people as a result of this act? And what is the reach of the Savior as He undoes, undoes this work? So that's what I want to look at first. What is the reach of the sentence? Well, again, just to reflect on what exactly is going on in this passage, you know, God had, uh, God told Adam, Adam, excuse me, upon placing him in the garden that he could eat from any tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, many have speculated, well, I wonder why that is. What was so special? What was unique about this particular tree? Was it somehow magical that if they ate of this, something was going to happen to them that was going to expand their mind in some, some unique way? It seems as though perhaps that's what the serpent is appealing to. If you eat of this, it's going to give you wisdom. Wisdom is something that's good. And if, by the way, if you're curious to know, what would a longer conversation have been like if I were to look in the garden? Well, C.S. Lewis does, does a great job of, of kind of recounting what this might have looked like in his space trilogy. So if you're, if you're a science fiction buff and you want to read about what this might have looked like as, as one writer would have imagined this interaction going on and how would this have worked, you can read the second book in the space trilogy. And I think, what is that called, Tom? Where's Tom? Per, did he disappear? Paralandra, that's Paralandra, so yeah. Uh, but it is, an interesting, it is an interesting discussion to see how is it that the serpent was able to convince the woman that this would be something that she ought uh, to eat. And yet she does, she gives some to Adam, and he eats, and now we, ha- we see the sentence coming down. And the sentence comes down to them, the sentence comes down to them in the curses that are given both to the serpent and to Adam and to Eve. And so, as we explore those different things, uh, we, we look at it like this. First of all, to Adam in verse 17, he says, "'Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you.'" Cursed is the ground because of you. So, the sentence that falls upon Adam and Eve as a result of taking the forbidden fruit extends to all of the earth. That's what he's saying. All of the earth is now somehow subject to some cursing from the Lord. Paul appeals to this in Romans chapter 8, which we looked at not that long ago. In verse 20 of Romans 8, he says, "'For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it.'" 
The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. Now, this is not an unjust action. There is this, this, in essence, Adam was called to be this, how should I put it, this uh, royal figure over all the earth. He is given dominion over all of the earth. He's called to cultivate it. He's called to develop it. He's called uh, to, to work it, to subdue it. So, there is, in essence, as so the the, the royal figure go, as the king goes, so does his kingdom. And we see this all throughout history as you look at the, uh, the, uh, the nation is often characterized by the character of their king. Um, Old Testament Israel was often like this. As you look at the story of both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah after their split, and you see what's going on in the kingdom itself, it's often described by how the king is. Is the king a good king? Is he a bad king? Is he a faithful king? Is he an unfaithful king? And however he goes, that's the direction of the judgment of God is coming upon his kingdom over, over whom he has been placed. So we see Adam having been given dominion over all the earth as a result of the fact that he has fallen, all of the earth is cursed. All of creation, you could say, is cursed. And it, it really shows us the scope of the sentence here is, is everything. This is, a, this is a cosmic scale curse that's going on. And I, I think as we often think about the day-to-day life of how we are affected by the, by the fall, I think we often think about our internal thoughts. We don't necessarily think about the cosmic nature of it, but there is a cosmic battle going on as a result of this, of this singular act of taking of the forbidden fruit. The sentence is far-reaching. And that the earth itself, creation itself, is decaying as a result. Look at the second part in verse 16 through 19. The sentence also means that our pursuits are going to be plagued with difficulty. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And to Adam, he said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So the two, specifically the one mandate that was given to man to exercise dominion over all the earth, to fill it and subdue it, those two aspects of filling and subduing, while they're not undone, they are filled now, plagued now with resistance and difficulty. To fill the earth requires the woman to bear children. But now the bearing of children is going to be filled with pain. The exercising dominion over the earth is going to require man to work. But now his work is going to be filled with pain. It's going to resist him. It's going to push back. It's going to force him by the sweat of his brow to eat. So things which might have gone easily before, things that they might have experienced in themselves to be blessings not only in the result, but in the experience of it, are no longer. It's not that Children and work are not still blessings, but they are blessings that are accompanied by a lot of pain and suffering and sweat that goes along with it. So the sentence covers the decay of creation, the difficulty in our pursuits, and the fact that we will one day return to dust. In the last part of verse 19, we see this, that the man is to return to the dust. And here's the evidence of the death sentence that God told him would surely come. Man was created with, with access to the tree of life, 
that he might live forever. Now it was denied him, and he will return to the dust from which he came. There is that in the sentence. Your life is now forfeit. Now, in the difficulty of these pursuits, I want to expand a little bit on these mandates to understand them. What was man created to do? Man was created, in, as theologians want to identify it, uh, with three specific mandates that he is called to be a part of. One they would call the cultural mandate, to cultivate and subdue the earth. The other would be called the social mandate, to come together with your wife as one flesh and to multiply and fill the earth. There's this idea that you will be living in society, that you will be living amongst each other, that you will be required to be in tight community and relationship with one another in order to make this happen. So, you're to be spreading and exercise dominion, cultivating, creating culture upon the earth, that you are to fill it and, and be engaged as community doing this in solidarity together, cultural and, spirit, or cultural and social mandate. And finally, there is this aspect of this spiritual mandate, uh, represented by the fact that the seventh day was set aside to rest and to remember that God is the Creator. The spiritual mandate is represented in the fact that they were able to walk and talk in the garden unhindered with God Himself. They are to be exercising this dominion on behalf of their unique relationship with the Lord. And all, those, all three of those things have now been affected by the sentence. They have all been affected by the sentence. Well, what's happened? There's the pain of the, of the work. There's the difficulty and now in relationships. And by the way, the sentence extends to the way we relate with each other too, not just the way we relate with the earth not just the way that the mother relates with the pain of bearing children, but also her desire will be for her husband, but he will rule over you. There's this implicit aspect that they will be butting heads, that there will be conflict in a relationship that was meant to be experiencing nothing but, but joyous intimacy as reflective of the, of the struggle in relationships that's going to exist across all the earth. So, if you want a, an explanation of why we experience the trouble we experience on earth today, well, we just go back to this chapter. It explains it. Why do we have so much frustration at work? Why do you have so much frustration in our marriages, in our families? And why do we feel so distant from the Lord? And by the way, that's reflected in the fact that God cast out of the garden, denied Him access to the tree of life. The fact that He's casting away from the place in which God was dwelling on earth, showing that now there is a chasm existing between the two. There is no way back to God for it's been guarded by angels with flaming swords. So, man is not able to restore any of the brokenness that's caused as a result of the sentence. That's the extent of what happened as a result of this fall. And it really sets the stage for understanding, well, if that's the extent of what's happened of the sentence, what is the Savior going to do to make things better? And here's where we see the reach of the Savior which goes even farther than the reach of the sentence. We see it in His call to repent, the continuation of the vocational calling upon Adam and Eve and the covering that He provides. So, if you look back at verse 8 again, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? 
The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This is such a fascinating fascinating conversation that goes on between the Lord and His people. It's as though you see what we would expect to be a conversation going on on earth between perhaps a father and a child. But in this case, it's a little bit different because God is not just any father. God is God. God is not surprised. He doesn't not know the answers to the questions He's asking. He's not asking because He doesn't know the answer, in other words. You know, He knows exactly what's happened. So, when He comes in the garden, it's fascinating how it's described of His coming because He's already told them, if, when you eat of the tree from this particular, forbidden, uh, this particular forbidden fruit, you will die. That's the sentence. They know that's coming. They know it is an extremely serious offense. So you would expect, having broken that one offense that, they, that God said would bring death, that He would come in in some grand form, riding on the clouds, as it were. For that's the image often used in the Old Testament when He's coming to bring judgment. He comes riding on the clouds, filled with fury and lightning. Or He's on top of the mountain where it's filled with smoke and rumbling and fire. That's the picture of the consuming fire of God or the one riding on the clouds to bring judgment. Instead, it says He's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Does that sound like He's riding on the clouds with fury ready to go? And he asks the man when he's hiding, why are you hiding? As if he doesn't know. Why would he ask him the question? What is he wanting from the man? I don't think he's wanting what he got, an excuse. There is this subtle invitation to bring, to come back into trust with God and simply confess and repent what, he's, what has happened. To appeal to the Lord to restore the thing that He has broken. But instead of that, Adam is still hiding behind the covering that he's made. Because if you'll notice, the covering was not only hiding them from God, it was hiding them from each other, the man and the woman, that is. Shame has entered the picture, and it's a very hard thing to get rid of. It's a very hard thing to undo. So there is this implicit call to repent in the way that God comes to Adam and Eve. And I think, by the way, it shows us something about the patient character of God, which is often what we don't picture. We think of God as this stern grandfather figure ready to crack our knuckles the the minute we get out of line. And He's not that at all. Time after time, we see Him presented as this patient, gentle Father coming inviting His children back into fellowship. I still think of the the story of of the two sons, the prodigal son in which the one goes off and squanders all of his father's inheritance on sinful living, doing, you know, longing to eat the pigs that he's feeding and their food, which is, by the way, in the Jewish community about the worst thing you could possibly do, knowing that that pigs were a, a, a forbidden, dirty animal. And yet he comes back to the Father, has this, has this all worked up, this speech in which he's going to give in hopes that the Father will simply restore him to a place as a servant in the household just so he can eat again. And instead, the Father runs to his son as soon as he sees him, falls all over him, hugging and kissing his neck, and says, my son has returned. 
killed a fatted calf. Bring my robe. Bring my sandals. Put them on his feet. Put my signet ring on his finger. He restores him in every way to his place by his side as the sun. That's the picture of God, the same God that is walking in the cool of the day, gently, so gently prodding Adam and Eve to offer the words that would bring restoration. This invitation to repentance is exhibited in the character of God. And yet they still make excuses. It was the woman that you gave me, Lord. No, it was the serpent who deceived me. Neither one of them takes responsibility for their actions, and so the sentence continues to go on. But even in the sentence itself, there is some degree of mercy we see. For the sentence upon the woman, you will have pain in your childbearing, indicates that, well, guess what? She's still going to be able to have children. I'm not removing that mandate from you. And while man is now going to work by the sweat of his brow, well, guess what? He could still work the land. While it might resist him, it's not going to be fruitless. There is still the calling as this royal figure, this, this kingly figure over all the earth to exercise dominion and cultivate it, which would indicate that if, if God has not completely removed the cultural and the social mandates, then perhaps He hasn't also removed the spiritual mandate. How is God going to restore the relationship that was broken? How is God going to bring them back into the garden from which they were cast out? And by the way, if you go and read the end of the book, you know where all the answers are, the book of Revelation, you'll see that the very last scene is a scene on the mountain or in the garden of God, if you want to think of either one, and they are invited to eat from the tree of life. So at the end of the story, there is an entrance back into the place where God Himself walks with His people in the cool of the day. So how do they go from being cast out to being brought back in? And that, of course, is where we are introduced to the work of the Savior. For in the sentence upon the serpent, which, by the way, he doesn't question the serpent. Did you notice that? He just jumps right to the, right to the sentence. Again, he already knew all the answers. He didn't need to know anything. So why did he not ask the serpent anything? The serpent didn't have the opportunity to repent, which is indicative of, of what we see explained in the Bible that the, that that humans are uniquely given the opportunity to repent, are uniquely given the privilege of redemption, which the angels do not have or the spiritual beings that God created do not have, but we do. So right to the sentence, the Lord jumps when He talks to the serpent, and He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, why would He put enmity there? If you just think about that. There is an implicit aspect that at the moment there isn't enmity. And the fact that she talked with the serpent, they engaged in conversation, that she was persuaded by the serpent to do what he said to do, she exhibited a measure of trust in the serpent and what he was telling her. Now, if you, talk, if you go and look at different commentators and talk about, uh, as they talk about who is this serpent, is he a, is he a snake figure, what is he? And there are some, some aspects that he's a, he's a figure of light that it wasn't so much indicative of a serpent that she's talking to a snake or something, a figure that looks like a snake, but more that someone that looks like a figure of light. So it looks like perhaps someone that has words of wisdom to offer. And she's believed them. She's put her trust in them. They have formed in some way some allegiance together. 
So the fact that God is going to have to intervene and put where there is, one, where there is now allegiance, He's going to put enmity, the first part of that sentence is that He's going to put things in there to separate them from being joined wrongfully. And then He says how He's going to do that. Well, how's He going to do that? Well, I will put enmity between you and the serpent and between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head while you will bruise His heel. There is this cosmic battle that is going to go on between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Somehow this battle is going to accomplish the crushing of the head or the power of the serpent to whisper words that are persuasive to pull people away from trusting in God. That is going to happen. The power of the serpent is going to be crushed. That's the idea of the head of the serpent being crushed. In the New Testament, it talks about the power of the serpent is the fact that we are all under the sentence of death. That is His power. As long as people lie under the sentence of death, we have no access to God. So the one way in which this seed of the woman was going to undo that, was going to crush the power of the serpent, was to somehow remove from under the sentence of death God's people. And of course, as the, as the New Testament unfolds, we know how that happened, of course. We know that Christ Himself hung on the cross as a substitute for all of us. And by the way, if you think about why did Adam and Eve not die on the day that they did that? The Bible does say that they will die the day that you eat this, surely you will die. Now, there's discussion about that. What, what, is, what does He mean by death? I mean, death ultimately is a casting away from the presence of God, and that did happen on that day, by the way. But the returning to dust, I would, I would go so far as to say that's, that's a foreshadowing. That's just an indicator. That's a, that's a picture of the ultimate death that we experience of being cast out of the presence of God. So on that day, they were cast out of the garden. But one day in the future, that seed of the woman is going to crush the power of the serpent to keep them out of the garden by lifting the sentence of death. And that's what Christ did on the cross. And if you think about the grand scope of the of this sentence and what it is, it means that somehow when Christ does that and brings all of His power to bear in that battle, in that cosmic battle, it's going to have the power to set things right on the earth as well. So while the earth was subject to futility and decay, somehow when the power of the serpent is broken, that the relationship that man has with creation is going to be restored. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. I don't think that part has happened yet. That's why we read in the last book in Revelation, that last picture, what it's like in the new heavens and the new earth, where there is no need for a sun, for the Lord Himself is there, where the streets are paved with gold, where there is, where there is uh, trees lining the river that flows from God that brings healing to the nations. There is this sense in which the creation and man, God's children, are living in complete harmony with one another. There is a restoration there that we can hardly even imagine. And if it's also, if it's, if it's to creation, it's also to the relationships that man has suffered from with each other, perhaps with people at work, perhaps with a spouse, perhaps with a child. And, but even on, even on this side of that ultimate new heavens and, and new earth, there is hope 
for people to see broken relationships restored if you know the power of God at work in your life. I mean, the hope for restored relationships really, when you look at the Bible, only comes through the power of the seed of the woman who's crushing the power of the serpent under his feet. So, in your day-to-day life, in your struggle with your spouse or your struggle with your child or your struggle with your coworker, you think, how can I see this improve? Well, I can't tell you the specifics other than put your hope and trust in the Lord. Somehow, some way, that is the answer to being redeemed. Now, of course, we can look at the rest of Scripture and see more specifics of how we can do those, practically speaking. But the point here is simply to make that the hope that we have for seeing those redemptions, those redeemed relationships, those restored relationships, not only with the with each other, but with creation, is because of the seed of the woman that God is going to send to crush the head of the serpent. And that relationship back into the garden is presented. How does God do that? Well, what does God do immediately after the sentencer and discovering that they are naked when man and woman try to, try to hide their shame by bringing fig, leg, uh, fig leaves together, sewing them together to make as a loincloth. God instead provides a covering with the sacrifice, the first sacrifice of an animal. The sacrifice of an animal provides a covering for their nakedness, something that they had tried to accomplish for themselves but were unable to do. It required God to make it. And that, of course, points us forward to the covering that we have in the work that Christ Himself accomplished. As He lived the life of perfect obedience, resisting the tempter in a way that Adam was unable to do, therefore reaching the point of being, of being right in the eyes of God and exchanging that righteousness for our sinfulness and our guilt so that when He dies on the cross, He's being justly punished in the place of Adam and Eve, by the way, in the place of you and I, and covering us instead with the righteousness that He earned. So, the problem between us and God is now resolved because we can enter into the presence of God as He sees us dressed in the righteousness of Christ. So, the seed of the woman is the first aspect of giving us a full extent of what is the scope and the reach of the work of the Savior that God is going to send into the world. So, when we think about Christmas, we think about Jesus, and we think about this little baby lying in a manger, and we have all the good songs that talk about Him and and things like that. Those are great, and those are good. But what you need to understand is that we're talking about one who's going to have an impact on all of the cosmos, all of creation is being lifted up and redeemed and restored as a result of this little baby that's coming into the world on Christmas morning. So, let's have hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that You have provided a covering, that You have made a way back into Your presence through the work that the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, would accomplish for us by crushing the power of Satan under our feet. Lord, give us this sense, this grand scale, this grand uh, cosmic vision of the work of Christ as we come to Christmas morning.
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.